So I'm going to name drop and say that I know Jake Menzel. And he's my friend. And he likes me. Actually, I'm going to name drop and say I hate these things, these cordless mics. And uh, back in about 1985, we brought Mother Teresa to St. Louis to speak at our General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church. And my best friend and I had the job of wiring her with a cordless mic. Well, you know what she wore, right? She wore that blue and white sari, you know? And so you're having to, like, reach inside the folds of her sorry, and you were really sorry to have to do it, you know? And you're trying to find a place to hang this, you know, that part of it, you know? And she's standing there patiently, and she said, I hate these things. (laughs) I always think about that when I have to use one of them, which is every week. So, the beginning of a new year is hard. And if we were to talk about why it's hard, we could talk about the years of COVID, we could talk about, you know, the economics now. And then if we got past the superficial, we would begin to talk about our families, our relationships, maybe work relationships. Then if we began to get really honest, we would begin to talk about our marriages and the difficulties of our marriages. And let me tell you, Mary Lee and I have been married forever, and marriage is still very difficult. It's difficult when you leave a a position and you have to leave your country and you don't have anybody around anymore. Um, it's particularly difficult when you, every Sunday you don't get the hugs of all the little children. That was one of the things I found most difficult, was not to have children around. Um, so we're progressively getting more honest, right? We've gone from, you know, the tyrants that govern us in COVID to relationships and work and family to marriage, Right? And then if we're really honest, the problem we have is ourselves. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. We have a number of avoidance mechanisms to deal to avoid being truthful about ourselves. And one of the saddest things that I ever saw as a pastor was a man who had his PhD from Yale. And he had just tons of children and grandchildren, grandchildren in the church. I don't know how many. A lot of them. 15 plus. And he was exceedingly bright. And he knew scripture in and out. If you know anything about the Plymouth Brethren, anybody ever heard of the Plymouth Brethren? Well, the Plymouth Brethren are like, and he had grown up in a Plymouth Brethren. You know who else grew up in a Plymouth Brethren church? (laughs) Garrison Keeler. I just thought I'd tell you that. And uh, this guy was discerning. When I first came to Bloomington, 
he wrote me an anonymous letter. It wasn't until years later I found out it was from him. His son told me it was an elder. He wrote me an anonymous letter talking about how proud I was and how, and this was in my first week of being in Bloomington. I just hadn't even met him. And he wrote me this long letter about how pompous pastors are and how proud we are and all this other stuff. He's like, boom, bam, you know? And so I was his pastor for probably 25 years. And I noticed that every Sunday morning he would never, uh, he would never stay in worship for the sermon. And it was covered up and hidden because what he would do is when the little ones were ushered out, he would very humbly with his head down walk out of the service with the little children, care for the children. Well, who's ever going to object to a man, you know, who leads the worship service to go be humble with the children and serve the children? Always carried a little uh, um, hard candies in his pocket you know, always giving candy to the little ones, you know. And, of course, the little ones loved him. He'd sit cross-legged on the floor and read to them. He was in his 70s at the time, you know. And they loved Grandpa. I won't say his name. And uh, eventually, uh, things, things happened, and we ended up having a church that did not have children leaving during the service, and that's a battle that you always have as churches, and I'm 50% on one side and 50% on the other, and don't divide over it. And uh, he wrote me a letter one Sunday, or sometime, and in the letter he said, now remind you, he had a PhD from Yale, all right? And he writes me this letter talking about how preaching is not worship. And the only worship in church services is the breaking of bread service and singing of hymns, okay? Now, I'm not going to go into describing how he'd arrived at that position, but this man was absolutely opposed to preaching, all right? And so I wrote a response to him, and and I was careful when I did that. I quoted church history. I quoted the fathers of the church. I quoted scripture. I talked about my own battle over that issue because when I went into the ministry, I didn't believe in preaching. I believed in small groups. I thought everything happened in fellowship, which it does, actually. <laughs> but I felt like preaching was a joke because I was a joke. You know, I mean, Nathan and Ben and Jake are jokes. And they know it, you know. And so anyhow, I wrote him back because I had seen God use preaching. I wrote him back and I defended it. I didn't get angry at him. I wasn't rude to him. I wasn't obnoxious. I am obnoxious, but I suppressed it. Okay. And it didn't change his mind. And I noticed as time went on, that he began to drop his wife off at church on Sunday morning. Now, mind you, his son isn't, 
his other son. One time his other son was preaching in the service, and I was at the back of the church, and he started walking out as his son got up to preach. And my heart absolutely broke because his son was so insecure. And I thought, oh, for heaven's sakes, man, would you love your son? And I went up to him and I said, say his name was Jonathan. I said, Jonathan, your, your son's about to preach. You should stay in. And he goes to me and says, Why? And I said, because you should tell him that he, that God used him with you. And he says, I, he doesn't need me to tell him that if God uses him, God uses him. He knows God uses him. And he just walks out, you know? So anyhow, he ended up not coming. And, uh, he'd drop his wife off and then he'd leave. I'd go visit him. You know, their family was at the very center of the church. I'd, I'd do peace uh, resolution, conflict resolution work between him and his wife, him and his sons, you know. One of the things I did, he was now in his early 80s, is anytime I had conflict resolution to do with this crusty PhD, you know what I'd always do? You're going to get a kick out of this. I'd always walk up to him and take my hand, and I'd just, ru- I'd just rub his cheek. And the funny thing was, with all his pride and rigidity, he'd always soften whenever I touched his cheek. It's a little trick, (laughs) you know. And so, as he got older, he eventually was reduced to not even leaving his home. He'd sit in front of his television and watch IU basketball games. His wife would be in the bedroom with the door closed. It was just very, very sad. I went to visit him one day, and here's what I said to him. I said, you know, Jonathan, well, now you know what his real name was. <laughs> you know. I said, you know, Jonathan, you're very good at seeing other people's sin. And it's a gift God gave you. You're very discerning of other people's sin. I said, the problem is that you're also equally good at seeing your own sin. And I said, the real problem is that you've cut yourself off from the people of God. And you have refused to be humble and to love others and to let them love you. And I said, now the problem is you're at the end of your life and you're at home in this chair And there's nobody here to tell you that you shouldn't believe all the lies that Satan is telling you in your own mind. You will not allow other people to tell you the work of God that they see in you. And so you're you're absolutely, completely vulnerable to your own cynicism, your own pride, your own sarcasm, your own discernment, your own judgment. Right? Are you all with me? And nobody can, nobody can protect you because you've cut yourself off from the people of God. Right? Philippians 1, 1 to 6. I, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Our Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of every one of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's just take a couple minutes going through this. It's Paul and Timothy writing. They had founded the church in Philippi. So they were the founding pastors, like your pastors, you know. So the bond was very intimate. They had birthed the church. And, you know, think of trying to take a, a child from a mother that's given that child birth, <laughs> you know. That's the way it is in ministry, you know. You, you wouldn't know it, but I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's like giving birth to a child. And so Paul and Timothy both, Timothy's his understudy, they love this church. And we know they love the church in Philippi. Uh, because we know that the only church the Apostle Paul was willing to take money from was the church in Philippi. Uh, I always had a principle that if I had rich people in my church, I would never allow them to buy me dinner. Uh, And why? Well, because you don't want anybody ever to think that the reason that you're rebuking them is because you think it will get money. Of course, that's a joke. I'm making a joke. The reason that you tell them how wonderful they are is because they'll stop giving you money because that's what ministry is in most churches today. You just flatter your people, you know. But my point is that I had a man who's very rich in my church, and I finally, in the last couple of years, after 20-some years, I began to let him occasionally buy me dinner. And that's a compliment, and that's the compliment of Paul and Timothy to the church in Philippi. He was willing to take money from them. He wasn't willing to take money from other churches. You know, no, 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 I don't want you to get the wrong impression. I'm not in it for the money. I mean, can you imagine anybody thinking the Apostle Paul's in it for the money? I mean, that's, that's a good joke, you know. And so the Apostle Paul and Timothy, they both love this church. They love it. And so they're writing it a letter, which is natural. And then he refers to him as a bondservant of Christ Jesus. I don't know whether you're aware, but I'm real fixated on the words that God inspires in Scripture. I'm tired of translators and Bible publishers not giving us the words that God inspired. This word here is the word slave. Okay, and we have these circumlocutions we use, you know, we spin around the word instead of giving what Paul is saying here is Timothy and I are slaves. All right, and that's hard in our culture where slavery is so wrapped up with racism and the underclass and all this other stuff. But can we please go back and admit what we are to Jesus? We're his slaves, okay? And particularly pastors are his slaves, you know. (laughs) All right. Two, so that's who's writing, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Now, what does the word saint mean? Uh, The word saint is the word sanctified. So it's the holy ones. 
Okay? So he's writing to all the holy ones in Philippi. You're here this morning. If Jake were to write all of you, he'd gone at a distance and he was working in some other church. He was writing a letter back to you. And he wrote to all the saints in Evansville or all the saints of the church. Would you think that he was writing to you? You know, on one hand, you can say, well, yeah, I mean, he's writing the church, you know, sovereign king. But actually, no, Christ the king. Church of the king. You get old, you're on blood pressure meds, your memory goes dunking. Why do they not let dunking? That seems crazy. Anyhow, brain... Church of the King. He writes Church of the King, all of you know you're being addressed. If he writes the Holy Ones of Church of the King, how many of you would say, yeah, that's me? <laughs> well, we'd have a hard time with that. Yeah. yeah, I'm one of the Holy Ones. But that's what the Apostle Paul refers to everybody in the church as. In Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, and the Apostle Paul is very rigid about something that all pastors and celebrities today try to hide, and that's authority. The whole evangelical movement today is doing everything it can to say, I am not in authority. The way they preach, the way they relate to you, the way they write, everything about them is like, I know you all hate authority, so don't look at me, because I'm not an authority. The Apostle Paul does the very opposite constantly. He's constantly saying, what? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And even here, he salutes the authorities in this church. Do you see it? He says, including the overseers and the deacons. Why would he do that? Well, he did that because everybody in the church hated authority just like we do today. <laughs> you know, none of us like authority. We're all like, oh, please get off your high horse. You have to earn your authority. I'm not under you unless I decide to be under you. <laughs> you know, and the apostle Paul is always saying, I'm an apostle and I'm writing to you, but also to your authorities. Okay. And that's helpful because it's in Scripture. It's a good reminder to us that we have authorities that we're under. I wish dads were laughing the way your sons are right now. <laughs> okay. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Then he says, verse 3, and he always says this at the beginning and at the end of his letters, okay? Grace and peace from God. All right, not from Washington, D.C. Verse 3, I thank my God. Now, I, I have to admit that I tend to be negative, okay? Maybe Mary wife would say it's far beyond a tendency. It's, it's, it's slavery. And when I was young, somebody gave me a book that I read, and it was a book that emphasized the importance of praising God in your prayers. And up until that point, I just always be, 
just jumped right in asking God for things. But this book taught me that we have to thank God. Then I read in Romans 1 that one of the prime characteristics of the, of the godless is what? And, and because of this failure, God gives them over to the worst things in the world, including homosexuality, okay? You remember how that chapter goes down, 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 down. Well, right on the pathway where God gives them over to the worst forms of sin, is this statement, they refuse to give thanks. Isn't that something? They refuse to give thanks. We have to give thanks. We have to give thanks to God. We have so much to give thanks to God for. I got a call early this morning from a pastor in another part of the country, and it was seven or six o'clock his time, and I was not in a position to begin to talk to him about his problems, (laughs) you know. And he told me that he was supposed to translate for his church this morning, large ethnic church, I won't tell you the ethnicity. And uh, he had gotten the manuscript the night before, and he'd read the manuscript. The manuscript was just really, you know, it was like Marxism, communism, secularism. It was just this manuscript about how we have to hold on to our children in the church. We're losing our children, and the prescription that he was giving was we have to cave in on all the biblical truths that are under attack. And he went through and listed them all, you know, where the places the church has to realize the children don't like the church standing against culture. Are you all with me? And he said, I can't translate this thing, you know. And he said, so I called and I asked another man if he would translate. And this other man put pressure on me to go ahead and translate, but just not give the actual sense of the words, you know, which is not real good, you know, when you have a translator who isn't translating what you're saying, but what he thinks. And so I was, I've read the story of Balaam. You all know the story of Balaam's ass, right? You, you know the story of Balaam? Huh? Remember, he was going to get paid good money to do what? Come on, speak up. Yes! Well done. And so, was he wanting to do it? Oh, yeah, buddy. He wanted to be rich and accepted by the king, but every time he opened his mouth, what did he do? He blessed Israel, you know, and the king kept saying, that's not what I asked you to do! And then he kept blessing Israel. Finally, he was almost ready to get killed by the angel of God, and his donkey, his ass, spoke to him. You know, I always think that that's a good metaphor for pastors. You know, Balaam's donkey. You know, just listen to us, because God's speaking. We don't know how, but it happens. All right? And so you think about all the ways that God deals with us, and he uses pastors, and he causes us to give thanks to him. And it's really quite surprising to us when we do speak thanks to God because our hearts are naturally disposed to what? 
to criticize and to be ungrateful. And one of, let me give you a warning about social media. I would say the main theme of social media is you're a victim and I'm a victim. Okay, do not give yourself to reading that or writing it. Because every time I hear people say it and read it, I think about them standing before God. And if they go through their lives one-upping each other about how much they've been hurt and their mama didn't love them, you know what I'm saying. And they get before God, and they say to God, my mama don't love me. It's not going to cut it, because each of us are moral agents who stand before God alone. Okay? And so we need to look at the proportion of our prayers that are whining, you know, and that are asking for things and that are whining. And, and, and I'm not saying it's wrong to whine. If you read David's Psalms, they have a lot of whining in them. I mean, it's not whining. I shouldn't call it whining, but he's complaining. All right. <clears throat> I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but do it to God. Don't do it publicly. All right, but then David's prayers are public in the book of Psalms, so there you have it. I don't know. But you know what I'm saying. Give thanks. And he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Now, that is pretty incredible to think that a pastor who knows a flock of sheep, every time he prays, is giving thanks for all of them. And listen, I want you to know, That is the way pastors look at you and love you. God gives pastors love for all of you. And so when Satan tempts you to think that you're the one that people don't notice, do you know who my entire ministry has given me? I mean, one of the three people in my ministry in Bloomington that has given me the most encouragement. Do you know who it is? <laughs> She's going to die. It's Beth, Nathan's mother. And you say, what? I don't even know her. She comes here. I don't know her. Well, Beth does her best to keep everybody from knowing her. That's a principle of her life. And I talked to her about this yesterday. I, I rebuked her for it, actually. You know, I said, would you just let everybody show you how much they like you, actually? You know, but no, nope, she won't. She'll take like when she decides she needs like. And having, having people who are quiet and self-effacing, you know, I, I joked to her yesterday, she's gone through life going like this. I'm not here, I'm not here, I'm not here, you know. Pastors give thanks to God for those people. Now, you might say to me, oh, that's a bunch of bunk. And I tell you, it's not. How many times have I told you how much strength I get from Beth? Constantly. Yep, that's my wife. So if Satan tempts you to think that you're overlooked and that you're a nasty one, don't believe it. The Apostle Paul says every time he prays, he thanks God for the church and then for all of them in the church, all of them. 
And that is how pastors love their sheep. I trust me on that. And then he says this. He says, verse 4, always remembering. I'm sorry, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. I mean, you really do want to say that the Apostle Paul lies here, you know. If you personalize it, if you think about yourself, right, you think, no, there's no way. But he says always, that's as opposed to sometimes, or never, always, offering prayer with joy, always with joy, in my every prayer, so it's all superlatives, okay, in my every prayer, and then he adds again, for you all, for you all. Now, why? Well, verse 5 says, in view of, in other words, when I look at your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So in other words, the church in Philippi was extraordinary in that they were teachable immediately. Now, are you teachable immediately? Because this is some place where you can't just clomp down on it and say, well, if it's true of the Philippians, it's true of me. Are you immediately teachable? Are, and, and of course, the way to say that is, are you immediately humble? Are you immediately meek? <laughs> you know, <laughs> nothing like the pot calling the kettle black here. <laughs> you know, no, I'm not immediately meek and humble. Nope, nope. Isn't it amazing to think that there was a church where it was filled with people who were immediately teachable, which means they were immediately meek and humble, immediately. Now, I will say that there are a number of you I'm looking at here, and I know you, and you are teachable and Im- immediately meek and humble. Those of us who aren't, we need to learn to be meek and humble. I have a grandson who is a piece of work. I got a lot of grandsons. But anybody that knows our family knows immediately who I'm talking about. I mean, this kid lives out loud. He's now gotten to that dangerous point in life where he's a man and not a boy. And you just wonder, what's coming? And so I'm constantly, do you know the expressions wheedling and cajoling? You know, I'm just like constantly kind of trying to give him gifts and, and plead with him and love him and stroke him. He likes to be touched and, and I'm never comfortable. But I'm trying to add everything I can to the work of his parents. You know what I'm saying? And lately what I've been saying to him is, you know, I, I say to him, the reason you don't want to ask God for the things you need is because you're a very proud man, and you don't want to humble yourself before God and ask him. You know, because I keep telling him, ask God for what you need. Ask him. But of course, that's as far as most pastors go. Ask God for what you need. No, no, no. I come back and I say, you know, you don't want to ask God for what you... You know why? Because you're very proud and you don't want to be dependent on God. Now, that's a helpful pastor. Because the truth is, we don't want to ask God for what we need. 
I mean, am I the only one that's going to confess this publicly? We don't want to depend on God. We want to have something in our grubby little hand to give to God, to commend us to God so then he'll meet us halfway, as long as we've proven that we're worth him meeting halfway. Be truthful about yourself. When your wife says, let's pray, you don't want to. Why not? Well, because you're proud. (laughs) You know, you don't want to have to be dependent on God. So a little story. I'm sorry, I don't find these little stories in famous sermons, but I, I want you to hear them. And I may be wrong in that, but at the end of life, you think you're wrong in a lot of stuff. So I had a friend who owned a hardware store up in my first, our first parish up in Wisconsin. And it was a true value hardware store. He was young. His parents had one. It was the family business. So they'd get a hardware store for each of their kids when, you know, they got old enough to handle it. (laughs) Excuse me. And he went to the local Baptist church. I was Presbyterian. We got to be very close. We did youth ministry together. And one day I was looking at our finances and I had a growing family and I lived in a tiny little a tiny little house that was owned by the church, so I was building no equity, and I was being paid a pittance, just a pittance, you know, in this little country town. And I got angry one day about how little I was getting paid. Well, you don't talk to your people about money, you know, it's unseemly. You don't do that. And so I went down to the hardware store, and... My friend Kurt was there. We went back into his workroom, the little place where he'd eat lunch. He could also see outside a window to the lake right behind him and see when the tip-ups came up. He had a fish. He'd fish from the store looking out at the lake, you know. And uh, I said to Kurt, I'm so angry at our church. (coughs) We knew all the people of the church. And... uh, why are you angry? I said, well, because it's budget time, and I know they're not going to raise our salary. And, you know, we're making it, but barely, and we're not getting any equity. I'd asked to buy a house. They wouldn't let me. I had to live in their little, it was, let me tell you. <laughs> Anyhow, and I remember him saying to me, well, trust God. And I was so disgusted that he said that. Really, I was. I was angry. I didn't ever get angry at Curtis. Never. I said, I don't want to. They owe it to me. You ever that way? With your husband and wife? I don't want to ask God. I don't want to trust God. I deserve it. You know? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. They were teachable 
And so the first day that the gospel was preached to them by Paul and Timothy, that first day, they participated in the gospel. And what that shows you is they were teachable, they were humble, they were meek, and they responded in faith to men who were sinful telling them the good news. Okay? And that's why the Apostle Paul was thankful. They were willing to feed from another man's hand. They were willing to respond to God in faith, having nothing to give God. And they just were humble, they were meek, and they said yes to the gospel. And they jumped in. And he says, not just from the first. He says, in view of your anticipation, the gospel participation from the first. But then he says, until now. So this was a very unusual group of Christians. They responded immediately, the first day, in faith, humbling themselves to God. Humbling themselves, okay? Humbling themselves, okay? And then he says, until now. Now that is extremely unusual in the ministry. You know, you look at you look at who it is who has fallen away from the Lord across your years. Now you might be cynical and you might be saying, well, this is an older pastor and he just thinks that anybody that rejects him rejects Jesus. No. We actually have the ability of knowing the difference between people that are rejecting us and people that are rejecting God. Sometimes we conflate the two. Sometimes we get a little confused, but our wives usually remind us of the difference. My wife's favorite statement to me is, Tim, it's not about you. Okay. It is horrible to see how common apostasy is among people that you have shared the most tender times of worship and fellowship. It really is awful. There are indeed many who fall by the wayside. Let's not be in any way confused about this. It is a real danger that we will turn to the side. This is the reason the New Testament is filled with exhortations to have faith and to look forward to the coming of Jesus to the very end, okay? Scripture's filled with it. You say, yeah, but I believe in eternal security. And I say, I do too. And you say, well, why did you just say, well, because Scripture believes in eternal security, it teaches it, and it says that only those who persevere to the end will be saved. And you say, well, those two can't be. I say, well, those two are scriptural. And you say, well, solve it for me. And I say, no, actually, you need to go to God and solve it for yourself. All right? I can't solve that for you because the pressure cooker is where God wants you, you know? There are many truths in Scripture that are pressure cookers, and you just have to submit to live in the pressure cooker and don't believe anybody that tries to get you out of the pressure cooker by saying he's got a sneaky way of you avoiding the tension of God's Word. All right? And then he says this. <clears throat> so the, they responded immediately, and they, they persevered to the very end. He says, until now, until now. 
They're persevering. And then he says, four, I am confident of this very thing. Now, the Apostle Paul is saying he's confident of something, and it's called this very thing. Now, what is that very thing that he's confident of? That he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The one who began the good work in us will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now listen, if you've had a lousy father, you don't understand this. Because a lousy father will allow you to stop your work halfway through. (laughs) He won't make you finish it. When you start whining, he'll say, oh, go to mommy and get a hug and a cookie. A good father will say no, a good workman completes the job. How many of you have a father that's taught you to be a good workman? Good. Those of you that have not had that, learn it. What the Apostle Paul's saying here is that he and Timothy are confident that God, confident that God will complete his good work in this church of Philippi. Complete. Now, I want, to, I want to talk to you a little bit about the condition of America and of the Midwest and of churches. I grew up in Wheaton. Wheaton, when I grew up in it, was the center of all evangelicalism. It was where Billy Graham had gone to, <clears throat> gone to college. Mary Lee's parents and my parents knew Billy and his wife, Ruth Bell. Um, crusade. InterVarsity, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, all these organizations, all the, all the radio, all the conferences, all the campgrounds, all the missions, they were all headquartered there. The magazines, Christianity, it was all there. You know, the publishers, everything was there. Now, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not by much. And our fathers, were leaders in that group. And so we had all these people. George Verr of Operation Mobilization would be at her parents' table when I went and stayed for dinner. You know, all these people we knew. And what we saw was that the entire apparatus of evangelicalism was hype. Are you, do you understand what hype is? It's like bling. Bling, hype. You know, fancy schmancy and what? Empty, empty. It was all about saying we have a truth. We have a wonderful way of saying it. We have, we have. And, and if you just give us money, if you buy our books, if you did it, did it, did it, did it, did it, then you will be as exciting as we are. And aren't we exciting? And so it was all marketing. That's all it was. Have you ever watched, actually watched an Apple, uh, what do they call them? An Apple keynote. You know, have you ever watched Apple release products? Anybody ever watched this? I watched one this last year. It's mind boggling. They spend the whole time saying, we are the most forward looking, sophisticated, cool, people in the world. And now here comes a woman who is just as sophisticated as our man who just taught you. And now, and our programming and everything, and it's just like, but they do it sotto voce. They do it soft voice. 
in a way that's cool that you don't really realize how cool they're saying they are. In fact, you don't even realize they're the ones saying how cool they are. And listen, if you watch an Apple presentation, what you will know is that if you buy into the Apple, uh, what's it called? The Apple program or the Apple brand. If you buy into the Apple brand, you'll be superior to everybody else in the world. And your life will be better. Now listen, listen to me very carefully. This is the basis of all marketing. There are no marketing programs that don't teach you that your life will change for the better if you will participate monetarily. Even the ones that are sophisticated and use like dogs to sell you on a weekly contribution to, if you look in the eyes of the dogs they have on television, you realize that if you give money for the support of that dog, that those eyes might get happier. And then you can claim happier eyes of dogs as your raison d'etre, as your reason to exist. I, I gave money for happy eyes on a dog that looks pitiful. Now listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm trying to be serious here. This is the church today. The church today is constantly telling us that they have a tweak, they have a book, they have a program, they have a way of thinking, they have a message, they have a fellowship, they have a hipster pastor. They, they have something that if you come, your life will be changed. And all of it is flattery. Your life coming here will not change. And you say, well, no, wait a second. It has. And I say, okay, okay, I lied to you. Your life coming here will change. But you know, the reason it will change is finally you will have non-hipster, non-marketing, non-flattering shepherds who will rebuke you. I mean, you know... And you say, well, I don't want that. I say, of course you don't want that. Just submit to it, and you'll get happy. And you say, oh, well, there you go again. You said that's marketing. I say, well, it's a weird thing that if you try to get happiness, you won't get it. But if you try to get godliness, you'll get happiness. You choose a church for its shepherds. And you choose it on the basis of who you trust to tell you no when you need to be told no. It's not telling you yes when you, although with Beth, it is telling her yes. There are people in every church who the rebuke is to say yes to them, you know, because they don't think they deserve yes. There are some of you here like that, right? You're convinced that you should always be told no, right? A shepherd rebukes you by telling you yes. Okay. There is no secret to the Christian life. There's none. The Christian life is not a marketing scheme. It's not. The Christian life is not about how you can be slightly happier than all the poor suckers around you that don't know Jesus. 
The Christian life is taking up your cross and dying. And I'm, I promise you, I'm 69, there is nothing that is more beautiful and which produces more happiness than death in Christ. I have never chosen to die to my fleshly desires and to my pride from faith, okay? I have never made that decision without from the ground there blossoming red life that will endless be. And so when the Apostle Paul says he's going to finish the work, he's not promising you that you're going to be taken out of the cauldron. He's not promising you you're not going to wake up in the morning and just feel like you are the single sore thumb of the universe. <laughs> you know, He's not promising you that your husband's going to stop sinning against you. He's not, going to pro- he's not promising you that you'll stop being bitter at what you suffered from your wife or your husband. What he's saying is that God will finish the work. God will finish the work. Now, what is the work? The work is painful. Sanctification is painful. And sanctification doesn't end until the end. He says until the very end. What is the very end? The very end is, now some of you know what I'm going to say, Christians desire three things with respect to sin. Justification, that it doesn't condemn. Sanctification, that it doesn't reign. Love, reign all over us. You know that song? Reign, R-A-I-G-N. Reign. Rule. Justification, that it doesn't condemn. Sanctification, that it doesn't rule over us. And anybody know? glorification that it will not be. Justification that doesn't condemn. Sanctification that it doesn't rule us. Glorification that it's gone. That's what we desire with sin. And he says he will complete the work to the very end. And that's glorification. We're finally done with this body of flesh. We're done with our lusts. We're done with our fears. We're done with our bitterness. And until that point comes, you have enrolled in a school of discipleship. And that school of discipleship is presided over by Jesus, and he will finish his work with you, and you will think, no, he won't. I'm a hopeless case. But we have the promise of Scripture that he will finish the work that he began in us. And the Apostle Paul says this about a whole church. Now, one last story. I don't know about you, but I have sins that are serious. One of them is anger. Uh, I came by it honestly, <laughs> you know. My mother was very angry, and I picked, picked it up from her. And so when we got married, I would frequently get very irritated with my wife and impute bad motives to her. Well, you know, you don't really care what I want. Any of you ever heard that from your spouse? You don't really care what I want, <laughs> you know. Stupid. But anyhow, I'd say that, you know. And inevitably, because I have a fairly tender conscience, pretty quickly I would say to her, I'm sorry. Well, how many of you have had your spouse say I'm sorry to you? Anybody? 
Some of you haven't, but... Now, how many of you have had your spouse say that they're sorry more than once? Some of you haven't. How many of you have had your spouse say to you a whole bunch of times they're sorry? It's getting smaller and smaller. How many of you had your spouse say that they're sorry to you a whole bunch of times for the same sin? Oh, come on. So you don't have faith in God's mercy. Or you don't think that your husband or wife is as merciful as God is. You say, well, I know they're not. So a little trick. After many, many times of saying to Mary Lee, I'm sorry, I put myself in her position. I thought, you know, if I were her, I'd just say to me, you're not really sorry ever. Because if you were really sorry, you'd repent. And repent means turn and, 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 and go a different direction. And so I said to her, you know, in Philippians, it says that God will finish the work that he's begun in me. I don't have anything in myself to commend myself to you for my sincerity and my willingness to stop this. But God says he'll finish the work. And so I don't ask you to believe in me. I ask you to believe in God working in me. And she'll tell you that even though I still have a temper and still am obnoxious, that over a period of time, you will see that God does change us. And so your hope will not be in some new scheme or new church or something like that. Your hope will be that God won't stop working in you. And as you look back over your life, you will see that the nature and number of your failures and sins are changing. <laughs> And that's the secret to the Christian life, that you rejoice in everything you see God has done instead of always being depressed about what you see in the present. And if you will look at the past, you'll admit. And if you're not willing to admit what God has done with you, you will be in a church of people who will tell you what God has done in you. And when the people fail, the shepherds will tell you the work that God has done in you. And they, like the Apostle Paul, will say, I'm convinced that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And that's so hopeful that God will not give up on us. It's so hopeful. So would you please love each other? Be forgiving. Especially be forgiving of your children. Do you realize what you were like when you were their age? And kids, begin to forgive your parents for all their sins because, oh, Lordy, we know we have them. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you will finish the work that you have begun in us. We thank you for this precious congregation of souls who have been given the gift of faith. Father, strengthen their faith this year. We do pray that daily you will add to their number those who are being saved. And we pray that you will give the pastors and their wives and their children faith to love and to serve this 
body of believers, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.